0: Lord, thank you again for this day, another Lord's Day, that we've set aside to come together uh, to bring worship to you, to enjoy fellowship together, and to hear from you as you speak to us through your word. Lord, please speak through your word today clearly to us. Lord, use it to bring conviction of sin, to bring encouragement to our hearts, Lord, um, that we might hear from you most of all as our prayer and that you would uh, use this time uh, to benefit your church and your people and to bring glory to yourself in Jesus name amen so at long last we have now today come to the conclusion or are coming to the conclusion of our survey of second chronicles so this is the last in this series and just by way of uh, announcement Um, Where we're going next in Sunday school, Matt Scheffler will take a turn next. We'll be back in church history looking at the, quote, imperial church period, which Matt tells me is the 300 A.D. to 800 A.D. We're very familiar with that, no doubt, so come to the next series. And then after that, um, we will have our, your friend and mine, Rod May, will take a turn teaching. And we'll be back to Bible survey. He's going to go through Ezra, so he will pick up where we leave off today. That'll happen in the weeks before Christmas, right? So that's where we're going. And today, on your handout, it's obvious what we're looking at. We're looking at the one of the or at the end of the kingdom, so to speak. We'll look at King Josiah and a few kings that come after him. Um, really, after King Josiah, it's kind of the beginning of the end so to speak, we'll see that after Josiah comes four kings in rapid succession, each of them with unusual names, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. It's the end, seemingly, the end of the line of David, Um, and of course, we know that it terminates with the Babylonian exile, so that's where we're going today. Um, Go ahead and turn, if you want to, to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, that's where we'll be And after we finish today, we will have covered nearly 400 years of biblical history. We began with Solomon, and we're working our way now towards the end. We've seen uh, more than a dozen different kings in detail in our survey. Um, We've looked at uh, faithful kings. We've looked at faithless kings, and some, most, or a mixture of both. We've seen battles won and battles lost, nations rising, nations falling, and today... Um, we will see kind of the end of the dominance of the Assyrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire. Before we get into that, I want to kind of think back to some of the main themes that we considered very early in our survey. And that was, I, I made the case that what the Chronicler is giving to us, in addition to all this history, is ultimately he's giving to his original audience, who of course were those that had come back from the exile after all of this had taken place he was giving to them and by extension giving to us two things mainly and I think that's instruction and hope the two things I think the chronicler was giving is instruction and hope and when we come to the end of the lesson today I want us to just briefly go over kind of a summary of those things that I think the chronicler has shown us in this survey by way of how he has instructed us And how he's given us hope. Um, Because we have to make sure that when we're looking at a book like Chronicles, that we're not just seeing names and figures and dates and nations and people and places. But again, I think standing in front of all of those things is the instruction he has for us and the hope that it brings. So, I know you've already turned uh, chapter 34, but remember last week we looked at King Hezekiah. And he was one of the more faithful kings in Judah. Very good example for us. Philip has handouts if you need them. Raise your hand. Thank you. Um, But after Hezekiah, things go downhill because his son Manasseh was an evil king and he reigned for 55 years. Doing as the chronicler described... Um, more evil in his reign than even the pagan neighboring nations around Israel. So it's a bad time for Israel in Manasseh's reign. Now at the end of his life, Manasseh seemingly turned back to the Lord. But the chronicler tells us that the people living under Manasseh continued living in idolatry and evil. So then after Manasseh comes a king named Amon or Amon. He only reigned for two years after Manasseh, but he was just as evil as his father had been. And Manasseh's reign was short because his his own people conspired to kill him. So we've had nearly 60 years of bad things taking place in Israel. It's yet another dark time in Israel's history. And so that's where Josiah enters our narrative. Let's just read the first two verses of chapter 34 see how this begins. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So now, for the second time in our survey, we see a young boy become king. We had previously seen Joash, a young boy made king, and now it's Josiah, eight years old. Can you imagine? I have an eight-year-old son. <laughs> Many of you know him. And I can't quite imagine what it's like to have an eight-year-old be the one that becomes king over God's people. Now, admittedly, the chronicler doesn't say so, but certainly Josiah had older, grown-up advisors, counselors, In some ways, perhaps ruling on his behalf. Um, But nevertheless, he's very young, eight years old, when his father, Amon, was killed. And what makes things a bit more puzzling to me is that not only was this young boy become king, but that he does right in the sight of the Lord. So much so that it says that he walked in the ways of his father, David, That's high praise right there, that he didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. And it really makes me wonder, how could that have been? If you think about his heritage, Amon before him, his father, Manasseh, his grandfather. Think about the atmosphere, the household that Josiah was born into and began to grow up in. I don't think there was a lot of Deuteronomy chapter 6 taking place in that household right? I don't think he would have received any instruction from the word and we as we will see I don't think that that could have happened because we'll see that later on in Josiah's reign the book of the law is found which means that it would have been lost. He wouldn't even had the word. So it's amazing to me that this young boy becomes king and he's living faithfully as a, as a young boy. But I think this is maybe even the first takeaway we have in this lesson. And that more than one time today, we will see God's providence worked out in ways that we don't expect. And simply, I think this is the first place we see this happening. That God is sovereignly working out his purpose for his people, even if that doesn't make sense to us. Let's see how he proceeds. Verse 3 through 7. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. And they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. And he burned the bones of the priests of their altars, and purged Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars, and beat the Asherim and the carved images into powder, and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So this, I think, is echoes of what we saw happen last time with King Hezekiah. Much like Hezekiah did, now Josiah is taking down these altars, these places of false worship. Places of idolatry are being torn down. And don't miss that in verse 5, the chronicler says that he, Josiah, burned the bones of the priests on their own altars. Now, these are not priests that were true priests, as in God's priests. These would have been false priests, priests that were leading people astray, leading people in idolatry. And in order for them to have their bones burned, I think it means that they must have obviously killed them first. So they've been killed and they're burning their bones on the same places where they previously had been offering sacrifices to false gods it said that this was the eighth year of his reign. So if he was eight years old when he became king, this began when he was 16 years old. Um, we see this progression. So 16 years old, he, began, he begins to seek the God of his father. And in the twelfth year of his reign, that now he's 20 years old, then he begins this purge of these false places of worship. And again, this is in pretty stark contrast to the previous boy king, Joash. Because yes, it's true that Joash seemed to be faithful in his early years, so long as this high priest Jehoiada was alive, giving him counsel, giving him, giving him advice. But The chronicler said that when Jehoiada died, well then Joash turned away from the Lord. So in contrast to that, now we have Josiah getting older, And actually growing in faithfulness. Growing in fruitfulness to the Lord. And really I think this should be an encouragement. To any one of us that has or will someday have children and or teenagers. And that I think the story of Josiah. Perhaps along with the story of Daniel and his three friends. Should give us encouragement and hope. That God can and does bring children to faith. And that if he does. He will keep them, and they can grow in faithfulness and in fruitfulness, even at a very young age. That's what Josiah is doing. Because I think what was true, I'm sorry, what's true for us today was also true in Josiah's day. Think about what Jesus said in John's gospel. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him Because you think about the fact that, well, the Word didn't exist right now in this time in Israel's history. So how was it that Josiah began to seek the Lord at all? Well, I think it must have been the same way that God operates in all of our lives. That the Lord began to draw him, began to lead him, even without the witness of the Word. This is the way that Scripture describes God begins to work in people's lives and of course we know that he uses means he uses his word he uses his spirit he uses the covenant community around us but again Josiah didn't have those things there was no covenant community around him there was no word but there was the spirit and he was sovereignly and quietly working I think in Josiah's heart and interestingly I think that this perhaps is all preparation for what's coming next let's look at verses 8 through 11 now in the 18th year of his reign, that would be when he's 26 years old, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Massiah, I'm sorry, Messiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it into the hands of the workmen, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord used it to restore and repair the house. They in turn gave it to the carpenters and to the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for couplings, and to make beams for the houses which the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. So once again, similar to Hezekiah's reign, Josiah begins to repair and rebuild the temple that of course had been broken down and fallen into disrepair and disuse during the previous king's reigns. It says that offerings were given for this purpose. People were giving money in order to rebuild the temple. And then something unexpected happens. Look down to verse 14. We'll go through verse 18. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given given by Moses. And Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, Everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. They have also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord, and they have delivered it into the hand of the supervisors and the workmen. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Okiah the priest gave me a book, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. So, and all this work going on in the temple, reconstructing, renovating, moving things in, moving things out, a book is found. Hilkiah finds it. He's a priest. And he does with the book what I think you should have done with the book. He gives it to this man, Shaphan. Shaphan was one of the men that Josiah had set aside to kind of lead and direct the work going on at the temple. You might think of Shaphan as one of those that is kind of overseeing work on a job site. Kind of the old school term, the clerk of the works, Perhaps. He's not a scribe in the sense of the scribes in Jesus' day. He's not a lawyer, but he's someone that records how the work is getting done. And I think that Shaphan doesn't realize the significance of what Hilkiah has found. And the way that he reports back to Josiah, I almost think it's almost humorous. He gives this very businesslike report. You can imagine him there in front of the king saying, here's what's going on. Well, your servants are doing the work. The work is going according to plan. The workers are getting paid. Oh, and Hilkiah found this book. I, I don't know that Shaphan really knew what had been found. It's almost an afterthought as he reports it to Josiah. But it also says that Shaphan reads from it in the presence of the king. And as he reads from it, Josiah is profoundly affected. Look at verses 19 through 21. And it came about when the king heard the words of the law... But he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord Do according to all that is written in this book. So whatever passage from whatever book that Chafin read to Josiah affected Josiah in such a way that he does two things. Well, first of all, he tears his clothes. And I think we understand that as a sign of shame and guilt. Almost a physical way of saying I am undone. And then he sends for someone to explain to him what's been revealed in this book. Now, I think that Josiah understood, well, first of all, Israel has been living in sin. They have not been living obediently. And according to what it says in this book, that God's wrath is coming. And so perhaps this question he wants answered, as he says, inquire of the Lord, what do we do? What do we do in light of what? this book has just told us and of course the question naturally arises what exactly had Schaafen read we don't know exactly but there seems to be a scholarly consensus that the book that was found was probably the book of Deuteronomy there's reason to believe that they wouldn't have described the entire Pentateuch perhaps as the book of the law It's unlikely that all five books of Moses could have been written in one book or on one scroll. And as he reads it, we don't know if he read the entire thing, but it certainly was unlikely that he would have attempted to read the entire Pentateuch in front of Josiah's throne. It was simply taken too long. But he could have read the book of Deuteronomy, and as it's described as the book of the law and later the book of the covenant, we know that Deuteronomy is kind of the second giving of the law. The Ten Commandments are recorded there again, but importantly, it also contains some important covenant language. that you, you think back to um, what happened when Israel was about to enter the promised land. And one of the things that Moses told the people that they should do when they cross over and enter is that they would go up on two different mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. On Gerizim, they would verbally proclaim, shout out, all the covenant blessings that God had promised for those that would obey him. From Mount Ebal, he said, now shout out all the covenant curses that will occur to us if we don't obey. And so there seems to be, I think, reasonable speculation that it could have been a passage from Deuteronomy that describes these covenant curses that was read to Josiah. And it was effect, it affected him in this way realizing rightly so that Israel was on a collision course with God's wrath because you may not realize that even in the book of Deuteronomy itself God held forth the promise or the possibility the prophetic possibility of the exile all the way back in Moses's day God effectively prophesied that if Continually, generation after generation, you're not living in faithfulness, then I will send you in to captivity. And that's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're not going to read that today. But I think it's likely, especially if you put yourself in Josiah's place, and he would have been hearing this for the first time, right? If you can imagine reading through a certain section of God's law that's describing curses and wrath having never heard it before and understanding that while he has a tender heart to seek the Lord he also knows that he is king over a people that have been living for generations in sin and I think he realizes how disturbing and how frightening that prospect was and so he calls to inquire of the Lord And they go and find a prophetess, Huldah. Let's read 23 through 28 and see what Huldah's answer is. And she, that's Huldah, said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants. Even all the curses written in the book which they have the read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him: Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, And you humbled yourself before God, and you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, so your eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring on this place, hand on its inhabitants and they brought word back to the king. So there's this twofold message from Huldah and again I think it's striking if you think back to what I said a moment ago in Deuteronomy there was a proclamation of God's covenant curses his judgment a proclamation of God's covenant blessing salvation so Huldah brings this kind of two-sided message First of all, she brings a, method of, uh, a message of God's judgment, wrath. Yes, it says, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants. So wrath is coming on Israel, on Jerusalem, on the temple itself. That's the first part of Huldah's message. But the second part of her message is really a message of salvation. It's a message of blessing for Josiah himself because she says that because your heart was tender Josiah because you have humbled yourself then really she's saying that this wrath and judgment that's coming is going to come after your reign is over with Josiah you're not going to have to experience this the people of Israel will but Josiah himself is being what's the word spared thank you besides being spared. So, again, um, we've seen previously in our survey, more than once, that the chronicler continues to kind of show the way that what he describes as a theology of immediate retribution. We've seen time and again that kings that are faithful receive judgment. That's not Kings that are faithful receive blessing. Kings that are not faithful receive judgment. And so here Josiah has been being faithful and he's being spared from the judgment that's coming. But at the same time, as we'll see soon enough, there will be one faithful mistake that Josiah makes at the end of his life. One moment of disobedience that actually will bring about God's judgment and Josiah's actual death. But now, on the whole... I think God is in some way rewarding Josiah for his faithfulness, saying that you will be spared from the wrath that's coming. Um, So God is being merciful to Josiah. Now, think about this. um, As I said before, maybe I didn't say this. We don't really know how long the book of the law had been lost or missing. It could have been upwards of 75 years, all the way back into the beginning of Manasseh's reign. Um, It could have gone all the way back into Hezekiah's reign, and I'll say why in a moment. But it may seem like a cruel turn of events for God's people to have been without God's word for that long, right? But it could have been, and commentators seem to agree that this is a very good possibility it's not that the book of the law was somehow accidentally lost. But it could have been that it was intentionally hidden. Particularly, it would make sense, in Hezekiah's reign. When Assyria was knocking on the door of Jerusalem ready to invade. We recall from last week all the preparations Hezekiah was doing. Rebuilding the walls, forming an army, appointing officers. One of the preparations they could have made, knowing that an army was about to come in and invade was we need to put the law and the covenant in a safe place. Because if Assyria comes in here, they're going to take whatever they find. And we don't want them taking God's word away from this place. So it could well have been that the book of the covenant was intentionally hidden. And I think it makes more sense understanding the context in which the book of the law was found. Because imagine if the book had come to light in the reign of Manasseh or Amon. Well, presumably it might not have meant anything to them. But being found in the reign of Josiah, a man whose heart was already tender to the Lord, already seeking the Lord. The reforms he was instituting were taking place before the law was even found. It could have been that this is yet another display of God's unexpected providence, sovereignly preserving and protecting his word. Knowing that this is the way that my word will best be preserved, perhaps if it's hidden away until the right time for it to be found. So it's found, it has this profound effect on Josiah. The message comes from Huldah, the prophetess. And then the last verse of chapter 34 kind of summarizes again Josiah's reign. It says, in verse 33, and Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. So this says that not only was Josiah faithful, but his leadership was effective to bring about faithfulness in the people. So long as Josiah was alive throughout his lifetime, they, that is Israel, did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. So, again, Hezekiah is an excellent example of a faithful king. The next chapter, chapter 35, is exclusively, almost exclusively devoted to him reinstituting the Passover, celebrating the Passover feast again. Now, we saw something very similar last week in our study, because Hezekiah had done the same thing. Because the kings before Hezekiah had been evil... Again, Hezekiah had to rebuild the temple. He brought back the Passover. We're not going to dwell on this one because it's very similar. So forgive me for skipping over the Passover. But I want us to come to the end of Josiah's life. And then, Lord willing, finish the book. I don't have another week to pick up where I leave off, so I have to finish. Um, Because I think the end of Josiah's life, as I said before is kind of the way that things in Israel begin to start unraveling such that it will not kind of come back together it begins to fall apart and we'll see why when we see the way that Josiah's life ends so chapter 35 let's read verses 20 through 27 after all this when Josiah had set the temple in order Necho king of Egypt came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates and Josiah went out to engage him But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, "'What do we have to do with each other, O king of Judah? "'I am not coming against you today, "'but against the house with which I am at war, "'and God has ordered me to hurry. "'Stop for your own sake from interfering with God, "'who is with me, that it may not destroy you.' "'However, Josiah would not turn away from him, "'but disguised himself in order to make war with him, "'nor did he listen to the words of Necho "'from the mouth of God,' But came to make war on the plain of Megiddo, and the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, "Take me away, for I am badly wounded." So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot which he had, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died, and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And all Josiah—I'm sorry—all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah and their lamentations to this day, and they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion are written in the law of the Lord, and his acts first to last. Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah." So what has happened here? Well, Josiah has gotten caught up in the middle of a conflict of the three world powers of the day. We have Egypt, we have Assyria, and we have Babylon. Now, Assyria's power is fading at this time. Their dominance is fading away. Babylon is rising. Um, Josiah was killed apparently in the year 609 B.C. Three years before that, 612 the Assyrian capital of Nineveh was overrun and taken by the Babylonians. So clearly Assyria is on the way down. The Babylon is on the way up. What about Egypt? Well, Egypt, I think, was um, in, a, in allegiance and in alliance with Assyria. And they were no doubt concerned that Assyria's power was fading, Babylon's power was rising, and I think that explains what the king of Egypt is doing here. He is bringing the Egyptian army up north from Egypt through Israel to join Assyria at a place called Carchemish to battle against Babylon. Of course, the geography of the Middle East puts Israel in the middle of all of this. They are right at the connection of three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. The great roads and trade routes pass through Israel, so it makes sense that Nico is kind of coming up through Israel seeking a way to get where he's going he has nothing to do with Judah he has no interest at all he says I have nothing to do with you Josiah we're just passing through with my army Um, but again not threatening at all not threatening Judah at all but for some reason and it's hard to understand why exactly Josiah is being obstinate he doesn't want to let the Egyptian army pass and it says that actually, and this is a little bit puzzling in, in itself, is that Nico actually delivers a message from God telling Josiah, you know, don't get in the middle of this or you will be destroyed. And perhaps it's odd to think that God is giving a message through this heathen king, Pharaoh, but that's what the chronicler says. And Josiah doesn't listen. He decides to bring the army of Israel to make war against Egypt at this place called Megiddo. And again, this is also bizarre. We see echoes of King Ahab here. Ahab, you may recall, disguised himself at Ramoth Gilead so that he might avoid being killed but have Jehoshaphat killed instead. That didn't work out for Ahab and the disguise doesn't work out for Josiah either. The Egyptian archers find their mark Josiah is wounded on the battlefield, taken away, back to Jerusalem, and he dies. And we can understand why there's such great sadness at Josiah's death. Because he was a man that had lived faithfully, led the people faithfully, and now he entangled himself with a foreign army that really had no bones to pick with Judah. Now Josiah's dead. He was only 39 years old. But again, if you get the sense of it, I think that things are drawing to a close in Israel. This is the beginning of the end. This is the last faithful king that they would have. That is until Christ. Because after Josiah dies, chapter 36 begins to tell us that there's kind of one king after another coming in rapid succession one after the other. Um, But before I get to that, As I said before Josiah was killed in the year 609 and was only four years after that 605 that Babylon comes in King Nebuchadnezzar and begins to take away the first wave of captives back to Babylon and not many years after that they began their siege their assault on Jerusalem itself and then eventually the year 586 BC the city is overrun the walls are broken down and the temple is destroyed. Now, while those things are happening, these next four kings, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, are all kind of taking the throne one right after the other. I'm actually not going to read the first part of chapter 36. I'll just summarize it for us. Jehoahaz only reigns for three months. After Josiah dies, the next king is only in power for three months. And then Pharaoh, in this case, takes him back to Egypt. In chains, it says. Bounds him to take him back to Egypt. And then Pharaoh puts someone else in power in his place, Jehoiakim. And he reigns for 11 years, but his reign is brought to an end. Because Nebuchadnezzar takes Jehoiakim back to Babylon. And I think that would have happened. um, In one of those first round of captives that were taken which would have also been one of those early rounds of captives when Daniel and his three friends were taken, right about the same time. And then after Jehoiakim comes Jehoiachin. And I think we have reason to believe, to, s- to think that Jehoiachin was really the end of the line of David's succession, at least at this time. There's a prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 22 where his curse is placed on Jehoiachin. For Jeremiah, as the Lord saying through Jeremiah about Jehoiachin, write this man down, childless. He would have no children. I think telling us that this is basically the end of the line. The Israelite monarchy appears to stop here. There is another man that is put on the throne again by Babylon, Zedekiah, but he makes us allegiance with Nebuchadnezzar. He is not faithful to the Lord, and he had been Jehoiachin's uncle, so not really following the line of succession. So Zedekiah is the last king in Israel um, so far as holding the office, and he also is taken away in 586, or his reign ends in 586, when Jerusalem is sacked, destroyed. But let's read. I'll read verses 14-14. Through 19 and chapter 36. One of my commentators called this the obituary of Israel. Verse 14 Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. They continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm, and gave them all into his hand. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all of its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all of its valuable articles. But notice, we only have four verses left of that left. But notice that as much as that is Israel's obituary, There is still mercy here. Verse 15, God is still desiring to save his people. He still has compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He had continually sent prophets one after the other, preaching a message of you can repent and be saved. The people generally rejected this message, and so it was a certainty that judgment was still coming. But I think it's worth noting that God is still being compassionate, still noting the mercy that he would like to have on his people. Um, It might also be, be worth noting that this also perhaps might allude back to, if you recall from our lesson on Solomon, the promise that God gave at the dedication of the temple. The most familiar verse that all of us might be familiar with from Second Chronicles 7.14, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. I think that that promise was still valid for Israel even at this time. That if people were still willing to repent, God would, would save them. God would forgive their sin. Even at the end. And perhaps before we read the last four verses, let's begin to kind of think about what we've seen in the survey as far as overall instruction and hope. What have we seen? You know the back side of your handout lists several items that we've seen. Just want to try to tie all this together, if I can, briefly. In our lesson regarding Solomon, I think one of the most important things we saw was that God was both transcendent, that is, he's high and lifted up, but he's also imminent. He's also near to us. He dwells with a low and contrite of heart. He's near to those that call on him. We also saw, of course, in the building of the temple, the priority that God places on right and true worship. And as I said just a moment ago, we saw the fact that God was always ready to forgive sin if his people would repent. In our lesson on Rehoboam, we saw that the foundation of God's law is actually God's character. But his law is founded upon who God is, and that is that he is the redeemer and the sustainer of his people. And that's the same for us. That's a good way for us to look at the law. That should be motivating for us, knowing that God has redeemed us And sustains us. We also saw the importance in Rehoboam's reign. Of the uh, setting our heart to seek the Lord actively. We saw that again with Josiah today. In our lesson on Jehoshaphat. Which also involved King Ahab. We clearly saw God's sovereignty on display. We saw that God's plans cannot be thwarted. And we also saw. That God was utterly trustworthy. He was mighty to save. Worthy of placing our trust in him. In our lesson on Jehoram, Ahaziah, Athaliah, and Joash, we saw that God's covenant word cannot be broken. Both his covenant word of blessing, also his covenant word of judgment. As we looked at those four characters, we saw that we should not waste our lives as they did. And that we should not let God's promise of forgiveness of sin be wasted on us. And then last week with Hezekiah, we saw what it looked like to live a life that was worshipful, a life of worship. A life of worship is being set apart from the world, being sensitive to sin, confessing sin, singing God's praises and living in thanksgiving and obedience in light of God's grace. So when you look at a list like that, it's obvious to me that Chronicles is not just about names and dates and facts and figures in history. There's a lot here for us and a lot for the chronicler's original audience. Cuz understand as you read these last four verses here that the people that the chronicler was writing to were the people that were coming back to the promised land after the exile was over. They were being sent back. Let's just read it. Let's finish the book, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So, this is in and of itself a remarkable instance of, I think, Proverbs 21, 1 playing itself out, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Who would have thought that the pagan king Cyrus of Persia would be the one to send God's people back? But God puts it on Cyrus's heart to do that. And so he does. And so, after living 70 years, I think I actually skipped two verses. 20 through 21 but after living 70 years in captivity god sends them back graciously his judgment at that time was over and the message to them from cyrus was this may the lord his god be with him and let him go up now go up to do what well oftentimes people or the writers of scripture describe people going up to jerusalem I think fundamentally the thing that they were looking forward to in going back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple, to get started again where things had been left off. Because remember, the temple was first and foremost the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. In their day, they were looking forward to going back to the place where they would dwell with God and God would dwell with them, but it was in a physical place manifested in the temple. And I think that they also would have been looking forward to perhaps they might have had hopes that God was going to reestablish the monarchy. But Lord, now we're going to come back to Jerusalem. We're going to have the temple again, as we'll see in our survey of Ezra soon enough. But what about having a king over us? Well, perhaps the last thing to observe is that in all of our survey of Second Chronicles, as I've said before, we've been looking for that king who would do three things. He would fulfill the Mosaic Covenant... That is, he'd obey the law. He would fulfill the Davidic covenant. And he would bring in the blessing of Abraham. And did we ever find that king in 2 Chronicles? No. But I think that the people that were going back may have still been hoping, Lord, perhaps you will raise up another son of David who will do these things. And perhaps it took longer than they would have hoped for. Many hundreds of years later, the Lord does send a son of David who would fulfill the law, fulfill the covenant, and bring in the blessing of Abraham. And we know that that's Christ. We all know that. And so perhaps the last bit of hope that Chronicles should give to us is that even when things seemed dark and dreary in the midst of God's people, there was always hope to look for that king that God would keep his covenant word. And of course, we're on the other side, looking back, back to Christ, knowing that God has been faithful. He has sent that King who for us is our Savior and Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you today as you've done everything necessary um, to bring us to salvation. Lord, you at some point in our lives, as you did for Josiah, you began to draw us to yourself and we thank you for that. Thank you for giving us words of instruction, giving us words of hope. Lord, help us to uh, live rightly uh, because of your grace, because of your character. And Lord, help us to consider the examples you've given us in these men and women uh, that we might live lives and worship towards you. In Jesus' name,